Well, hello. Welcome back to Out of Curiosity, where we are seeking biblical clarity for modern questions. I am Garland. And I'm Cameron. Cameron, um, we're actually following up on a, a question that we asked and answered earlier this season, which was uh, a, a, a rather, I thought, a kind of a profound conversation that I'd never really considered before, which was, is a God of judgment good news? And we talked hmm. about um, ultimately why and how the answer to that question is yes. Um, but n- now maybe even a more troubling question is, is this, um, and, and I'll try to layer it up to make it as troubling as possible for you. Um, <laughs> so, so bear with me here. Um, how, how do we answer the question that if we have a God that ultimately will bring judgment, that ultimately condemns, if we see that in our God, then how does that not inevitably then lead to violence? among his people. And, and to make it extra troubling, um, we'll look at history than a conversation I even had last week. Historically, okay. uh, there have been many Christians who have done atrocious things yeah. in the name of not only the God of the Bible, but in the name of executing judgment on behalf of the God of the Bible. Yeah. Um, there are scenes in the Bible that seem to... Uh, illicit violence and bloodshed. And I had a conversation just a couple of days ago where this was like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make it as troubling as possible because where it really gets down to it is when you sit across from somebody and they begin to ask this question, it becomes very almost painful. Um, squaring the idea yeah. of the love of God with the idea of, of quote unquote, the bad news of the judgment of God I think leads many, many people not only to consider reconsider who God is and Christianity, but many to even begin to deconstruct their faith. Um, and it can be very, it can be very painful. It can be filled with um, like a fear uh, about this. And so, and I, this is a recent conversation. Was just, I was just look at this person's eyes. So there you go. Uh, long intro. Um, how does a God of judgment not inevitably breed violence among the followers of that God? Yeah. That's really well said. Yeah, it's it's a deeply troubling question, and um, probably most of all because, as you said, in actual history, we have all kinds of examples of uh, of the Christian God specifically, or, or rather, people's mistaken understandings of this Christian God um, leading to all kinds of violence. You could think of things things like the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, Rwandan civil war had elements of it, um, even outside of um, Christianity. You know, Islam has famous versions of, of these kinds of ideas too. Um, and then even within the biblical story, even within the biblical story itself, you have some very, very troubling accounts like Israel's taking of the land in Canaan. You can read about that in the book of Joshua. Um, it raises this issue um, as well as other things as well in the scriptures. So we have to have an answer to this. And I know that deeply personal, it's deeply painful for um, probably most people who think about it with mm-hmm. at any level of depth. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I want to tread lightly, not presume again that we're going to get to the bottom of all this, but um, I want to, I, I want to kind of start back from the question and then by, by the end, we'll kind of be answering it directly head on. But um, I think the first thing I would say in response is that the question does, does God, does a judging God breed violence begins with 
the character of that God and just what kind of God are we talking about here? Um, so a lot of times, um, if we assume that because he judges that he's fundamentally unloving or cruel or capricious towards, towards his people that he's created, uh, that takes you a very different direction. But I think even in the context of these wars and, you know, national conflicts and um, Christians taking up the sword against other people, I think it's really profound to remember God's heart for people in the most basic form. God created all people to be in his image. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, And that doesn't change based on your ethnicity or your nationality or anything else. Secondarily, when God creates uh, his people, specifically in the nation of Israel, um, through the Exodus event, listen to this in Exodus 19. He says, my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And I like to think of that idea of Israel as a priesthood, as them basically serving as a lighthouse. I mean, a priest is a mediator between God and people. And Israel as a nation was meant to be fundamentally invitational to the nations. Not Mm -hmm. that they would be excluded, not that they would be judged by Israel, but that they would be invited in to come and experience the goodness of God, to worship him, the one true God of the universe. And you even see that quite explicitly. I I love this passage from Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, shall be lifted up above the hills, and all, listen to this, all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, for he, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And it goes on, but Mm-hmm. fundamentally God's posture uh, is one of, of love. And we talked about this in part one of this conversation seen most ex- explicitly in the fact that he would send his son Jesus to die uh, to, to close the gap and close the distance between him and, and the world and anyone who would come and, and receive what he'd done on their behalf. So I, I think you have to start there uh, with the, just the, the basic character of God and let that start to color where you go. I mean, that's, we have to start there. And I think this is where I, we oftentimes, I think, make a crucial misstep. Even people that grow up in church, maybe even are in church right now, I think it's very easy for us when we conceive of the, the, the God of the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. I hear this so regularly, that's why I mentioned it here. It, nobody would state it how I'm about to state it, but I think it's what we really think internally uh, oftentimes. And I think it's what okay. a lot of skeptics think that Christians believe that the God of the Bible, the, you know, the, especially the God of the old Testament, quote unquote, um, is a God who gave impossible rules. They were incredibly, he's incredibly exacting in nature. And then we come to find out later that he knew we couldn't obey the rules, but gave them to us anyway. Um, and that he then, because we broke one little rule and would break the little rules again, and to us, they, as modern people, they seem outrageously capricious and outdated, that therefore he wants to, he, he's out for blood of all of humanity on the basis of one little misstep here or there. And when we read the Old Testament, I think for many of us, that's the conception of God that we, 
that we come to, and then I think many Christians go, well, thank, you know, we have Jesus now, and he, he took the, God took his, his blood, and now Jesus did it for us, and I guess that's good news for us, but I think what you're suggesting is that's a misstep from the very beginning. From the very beginning, we have a God desperate to work in and through humans to bring his blessing to bear in the world, and when humans find themselves bringing all the brokenness and injustice and pain in the world that we that Christians refer to as sin, God is actually pressing in through his, the family of Abraham, through the people of Israel, that he might continue to extend that blessing. It's just a fundamental yeah. shift in how we conceive of the, the quote-unquote God of the Old Testament because the, the reason it's important is I hear people saying all the time, um, I like Jesus, but not that Old Testament thing, as if they're different. And I think we need to see how the story of the Bible actually plays itself out. I think you're right to help us see that he's a God who wants all people. Okay, I'm, I don't want to go off preaching now. So uh, how else would you help <laughs> us here? Well, so I would start there. And then maybe a second point is, of course, you have to acknowledge um, some of these scandalous things we've already mentioned, like, for example, the call God, the call that God gives to Israel to go and take over the land of Canaan and to defeat, militarily defeat um, the Canaanites. And you read some of those passages, and they're really hard. They're really hard for me to stomach um, at times, and I know as they are for many people. But I, I would just maybe address that a couple of ways as our second point. First is to say, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, um, well, let me back up. God often chooses to execute His will through people. I mean, that's part of the image of God as us being His representatives, His images. Here in this world, he wanted before the fall. He wanted to partner with people to bring creation forward and to cultivate it and to make it even more hospitable and beautiful. And so, his very the way he's chosen to interact with the world certainly he does it directly, but he also does it often through people. And under the old covenant, we have a few instances where we see God using people uh, quite explicitly as his instruments of judgment. which is really painful. I would, if you hadn't listened to to the first part of this podcast, I would pause here and go back and listen to that and say, okay, wait, I I don't like that God judges. Well, maybe we should reconsider that when you're thinking about these um, these people groups that are doing things like child sacrifice and all kinds of horrible things. I think we do want a God who's going to say, no, stop. Um, and it so happens that in the Old Testament, yes, there's a couple of key times when He uses Israel. Uh, to execute that judgment. Uh, I would say, though, the, the emphasis uh, of that theme, though, actually comes the other direction. It's that he uses the rival nations to execute his judgment on his people, Israel, uh, that comes through Babylon and Assyria are perhaps the most famous examples. But um, God uses these nations to, to discipline and to execute kind of a limiting justice on his own people when they've become too corrupt and too idolatrous and whenever they have departed from his goodness and his covenant and to such a significant degree. So that's interesting that that's kind of where the, the force of, of this kind of minor theme falls. But I would maybe say a third thing is that these specific commands and instances are so limited. Um, they are always limited. They are not, there's no universal command to go and execute God's judgment on people around you through physical violence. That's just a general and longstanding thing. Mm -hmm. It's always limited. The lesson I think we're always meant to take, uh, or, or rather we're never meant to take is go and do likewise, like today as modern Christians living in, you know, wherever we happen to live today. 
that's no one ta- virtually no one takes that as an application of these these very limited and specific stories that we find um, in the Hebrew Bible. It's almost as if the exception proves the rule. Um, they yeah. are so exceptional. That's why they stand out. Um, yeah. And you know, we did a podcast on Out of Curiosity a couple of seasons ago um, where we talked about does God command or condone genocide in the Old Testament? And um, it's worth exploring. I think there's there's some nuance in the language or some nuance in the way that I think those yeah. stories are told, uh, even in the Old Testament, that um, it doesn't... It doesn't make all the problems go away. I'm not suggesting that, uh, but I do think it adjusts how we conceive of it uh, a little bit. But what you're suggesting is they're so limited, they're so exceptional that a command they do not make. Um, Okay, so the nature and character of God, secondly, the exceptional nature of the violence that we do see in the Bible. Um, Number three, what what would be our next point? Number three, I've already gestured at it, um, but it's that, the cross becomes, in the whole biblical narrative, I mean, the, the cross of Jesus, the, the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, is the central hinge point. It's everything that the Old Testament is looking forward to. It's everything that the New Testament is looking back on in remembrance of and in application of. And so, unsurprisingly, the cross becomes the ultimate image of the relationship between judgment and violence for God. And I just... I, I can tear up whenever I think about it, if I allow myself to think about it, but think of the words of Jesus as he's being hung on the cross. Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, as they are nailing him, hoisting him up on this ancient, humiliating, shameful torture device, Jesus declares, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that there is like the heart of, of our God um, in so many ways. Think of how Paul thinks back on the nature of, of God as he's experienced it through Jesus in Romans 5, 6 through 10. He says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by God, to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So the cross demonstrates, I think what we started with, which is the fundamental heart of God, uh, is to, in an act of fun, of deepest self-giving, self sacrificial love, he dies. He experiences the violence and the ultimate judgment so that those who genuinely deserve it might not have to bear it, that they might receive forgiveness and grace and life and restoration and peace uh, in exchange. And so um, you can't think about, exactly as you said, those Old Testament stories, they can tend to be exceptions that prove the rule. What's the rule? Where do we most clearly see the heart of God? Uh, it's in Jesus who says, to look at me is to see the Father. It's in, as is declared by the author of Hebrews, like he's spoken through prophets and in many ways, but now he's spoken in son, in his son. And so um, that should, things are totally different now, this side of the cross. God's character isn't different. God's character has always been consistent, but now he has finally executed that final ultimate act of justice, uh, receiving it into himself trinitarily in the person of Jesus. And so you can't have this conversation without going there. Right, right. And I think that's helpful. I, I could imagine, though, so 
within the you know within the um, the community of maybe Christians hearing what you're saying, I can see them going, okay, yeah, that's good. I, I I like that. I like that. Yeah, preach on, preach on. I could see though a skeptic hearing this and saying, well, hold on a sec. You're trying to explain away the bad parts of your Bible. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. Jesus is cool and all, and so yeah, I I, I like that. But um, we don't we don't need God for nonviolence and for non-retribution to win the day. We, we don't need all of this. We don't need judgment from God. That is such a backwards, archaic kind of an idea that smacks in the face of a God of love. Can't we just, this is John Lennon's mantra, can't we just uh, live together in harmony and, and bless each other and forgive with no hell and heaven and all that? We finally will find that our best instincts will emerge and nonviolent reciprocity of blessing and love will win the day. Like, how would you respond to that then? Because I think that tends to be the, the yeah. challenge is, is we don't need this. Um, we, we can live in harmony without it. How, how would you maybe give a challenge to that? Yeah, and that's exactly where I wanted to go for, for kind of my fourth point. I'll just summarize it this way. I, I'm going to argue right now that the final judgment of God that is coming precludes human final judgment or human violent judgment. And what I mean by that is, well, let's start here. God explicitly calls his people to live peaceably and to leave final judgment to him. So, so if you're a Christian, you do not have license to take up the sword and go say, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, execute justice in this situation. I think it deserves death. You don't have that right. In Romans 12, Paul writes, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what's honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Listen to this. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay it, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I know in reading that that someone goes, oh, see, it's right there. God is going to wrathfully execute his vengeance on people. Like, oh, isn't that horrific? But listen to the logic of this. What he's saying is that we will in this life, everyone will encounter things, um, or many people will, that are so horrific, so unjust, so violating that the impulse will be to grab your sword or grab your rifle or whatever it is and to go avenge yourself. And his, the logic of this is that le- we must leave it to God. Why? Because only God can judge impartially and with full wisdom and with full insight into the situation, with all the facts on the table, with perfect proportionality, with a perfect sense of goodness and rightness and righteousness, we don't get to do it. This might be the challenge that I would then, uh, I guess, uh, even affirm and take take to another step would be um, the history. Just consider the history of human beings when one group is uh, when one group is marginalized. Almost always, everything about human history would tell us the second they gain power, they begin to marginalize the previous group that was executing uh, the marginalization. We don't have the ability, historically speaking, and in modern day conventions of this, 
to execute vengeance. When we take the sword into our own hands, human history would tell us we always, uh, we're, we're always never proportionate. Um, we, we have no capability, it seems, to enact that kind of vengeance and just look at the history of the world, even, uh, even groups within our own culture here in America. The second they gain the power, they begin to demonize, ostracize, and show hostility to the one that previously had the power and did that very thing to them. That yeah. idea that we're, we're right there on the edge of finding that, that society where love and peace will win, it's, a, it's sad to say it, it just seems historically in present day to be a pipe dream. Um, yeah. And I think anyone that's, anyone willing to actually look at their own heart and then I think their group or their tribe or their group or their people and be critical, I think would have to at least acknowledge that. But you might even take it a little bit farther. Yeah, well, I would say um, I think there's there's one really powerful example that I think kind of maybe if this all sounds a little bit abstract, kind of brings it into really concrete focus, which comes from the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf. And I've, I've heard Tim Keller, I remember hearing Tim Keller quote this a bunch in sermons, and I ended up getting the book myself and was just knocked over by it. It's so good. His book's called Exclusion and Embrace. But listen to what he says. He He basically... Uh, being Croatian, he he lived, um, and and experienced and has many close family members who who experienced. I'm not going to use graphic language, but like absolute pillaging of his friends, his family, and his community, um, bloodshed and worse. Um, and here's here's what he writes about the power, the peacemaking power of the belief in a judging God. He says, quote, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. And this will be popular, unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who's inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburb home or the for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. So what he's saying is if, when you encounter, maybe you're listening to this and you've experienced something horrific. Um, it's only the people who've never experienced those things and have been legitimately tempted to go and, and make it right with the sword who could say, oh yeah, just God doesn't coerce and he doesn't really care and he doesn't really get involved. Um, it's only for those people for whom these things make any sense. Wolf goes on to say that it's only the promise that God is watching um, that God loves people and cares deeply about their sufferings and that he promises to one day put it all right, only those beliefs will keep the victim of great tragedy from having to pick up the sword and take matters into his or her own hands. His coming judgment saves us from, from the sort of unjust and imprecise judgments of one another. You could even go as far as to say as the cross is the only thing that could start 
uh, to end the endless cycles of retribution, the cross and the promise of, of the final judgment, the final kind of putting right of all things that's coming. Um, so my, my, my question in response to someone who, who would raise some of the questions you're raising, Garland, would be, without a judging God, what possibly could keep people from perpetuating these endless cycles of violence against one another? Who else or what else has the power to diffuse them? The kind of wishful thinking, can't we all just get along? I don't think it works once you come face to face with real, genuine tragedy and suffering. I mean, that, that's incredibly powerful. And I think um, what you just stated, only the cross can free humanity from this endless cycle of violence against each other. I, I'm going to think about that for not just the rest of the day. I'm about to think about that for a while. That is such a, not only a profound, but a beautifully compelling thought. Um, and once again, on this conversation, we, we are back at the foot of the cross. And so you give us a lot to think about. Um, I, I think it's a challenge um, as we look at the, the atrocities even going on in our world right now. It's a challenge to be empathetic, um, but to recognize that what does God see when he looks out? How does he experience it? And then to run all of that, when we're watching the news or what's going on in your own life, to run all of that back to the cross. Uh, that's yeah. really powerful. Um, thanks for just sorting my, my heart and mind out uh, and, and pointing me in the right direction. And as always, thanks for listening to Out of Curiosity. 